My name is Phil Stinson, and I'm an Associate Professor of Criminal Justice at Bowling Green State University. In this episode of the Police Integrity Laws Podcast, we listen to an interview of me that was recorded on May 24th, 2016 for the Vocal Minority Report Podcast. Hey, welcome to another episode of the Vocal Minority Report. It's your boy, MC. Thanks so much for downloading. As always, you can download it any podcast in the world, but you're here with us. We still and always will appreciate that. Thanks to all our new listeners. I know after last week's show with uh, Asia McLean Chapman from uh, the Serial Podcast, the Alibi Witness and the Adnan Syed Murder Trial of Heyman Lee I know we picked up uh, a lot of new listeners, so thanks to everyone who uh, listened. Thanks to everyone who left some uh, positive comments. There were some positive comments, believe it or not, on Reddit, in addition to the uh, negative ones, but it's all good. Thanks for everyone who's listening. Remember to uh, use the hashtag, The Vocal Minority. Please go to Facebook, like the page. It's uh, facebook.com slash The Vocal Minority Report. Leave a like there. Also go to iTunes, hit subscribe, leave a rating, leave a review. It uh, will really help us. We really appreciate it. And if you're one of our valued SoundCloud listeners, please go on SoundCloud, like the show, repost. Go ahead and do it now. Take a minute, like, subscribe. I appreciate it. Thanks for everyone who's listening. And I hope you guys enjoy this episode. This week we have Phil Stinson, who is... I'll let him get into his backstory, but he is a uh, currently an associate professor and criminologist at Bowling Green State University. He's a fascinating man with a good story, but more importantly, the research that his him and his uh, team do on police misconduct is is pretty fascinating and I think worthwhile to all of the audience. So on this episode, we'll talk about police misconduct, but not in the context of killing unarmed black people this time. This will be more about the broader issues of overall bad behavior and some of the items that might contribute to those killings and lack lack of the value of black lives and other minorities. So sit back. Hope you enjoy the episode and we'll talk to you after the show. Previously on the Vocal Minority. Are you part of the silent majority? Or are you part of the vocal minority? Let's go. Let's go. Attention, please, attention, please. If America can be saved, then I don't know what it's too late. But it'll be two radio shows. Like this, this new thing. This shit here feels like a whole Italian world collapse. Will not be televised. 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 The revolution will be no rebirth, brothers. It's the vocal Welcome to the Vocal Minority Report. Our guest today is a former police officer who is now an associate professor of criminal justice at Bowling Green State University, where he's a pioneer in the research and collection of data on police crime and misconduct. He manages the largest police conduct database in America. His work has been featured on Nate Silver's website, 538.com, as well as cited in the Washington Post. He's been a guest on Anderson Cooper 360, CBS This Morning. He's also hosted the great podcast, Police Integrity Lost. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Phil Stinson to the show. Well, thanks for having me. Looking forward to it. Hey, no problem. Thanks for being here. Really a pleasure to have you with us. As I told you before we started recording, I'm a big fan of your podcast, which is it's kind of weird to say I'm a big fan of a podcast about <laughs> police misconduct, but but the the way you get that information out to the listeners, a uh, big fan of. And the uh, topic is one that interests me greatly. You know, when the people who are supposed to protect us, you know, who's policing them? You know, it's kind of cliche, but, you know, that's certainly an interesting topic. So, one Well, ha- nobody's policing them because law enforcement is generally exempt from law enforcement. Okay. So that that's one of the reasons I got into this area of research to begin with, because it's a hidden crime. And as a graduate student, you know, thinking about what you're going to do for a dissertation topic, it fascinated me that there's no official statistics available. There's There's very little research and nobody's got... Uh, good data. At least at that time, nobody had good data uh, in this area. So it was something that I was really drawn to. And I tell you what, what really interests me the most, which is impossible to really study, are the police officers who commit crimes and they don't get caught. That's where the real interest is. But but I haven't figured out how to conquer that area of research yet. Okay, I got you. Well, one area you ha- you have conquered is the collection and the, you know, it's it's really 
vogue now to say, you know, to content curators, you know, everyone wants someone who curates content, right? So you, you, for lack of a better term, have been able to curate all of this data and, and, and bring it together. And, and I guess we should speak about the data we're speaking of when, as far as your database and what you've collected and what you actually do. Okay. Okay, we can go into that. Uh, so I started this back at the end of 2004, and I had practiced law for about a decade and, and gone back to graduate school and was in a graduate class where we were dealing with these types of issues. And, uh, you know, classmates of mine didn't think that, that police officers got in trouble much, and I just thought that that was a ridiculous notion and that it, it seemed to happen with some regularity. And what I decided to do at that point was to rely on media reports, so news articles. And, you know, when people look at their uh, local newspaper wherever they happen to live and read an article of an officer who's gotten in trouble, I think the general reaction is, wow, that, that's kind of weird. That doesn't happen very much. And what they don't realize is that people in every town and city across the country are reading similar articles every week. Yeah. So over time, I developed about 50 automated search terms. We set up Google alerts and they constantly crawl the Google News search engine. And I've been doing this since the beginning of 2005. So initially, the way we find out about officers who get arrested are news reports and we follow the cases uh, through through the court system we get the court records when they're available and anything else that we can get hold of and we do this about 1100 times a year so at this wow. point there's over 10,000 officers in our database and about almost 12,000 arrest cases because some of the officers get arrested more than once some of them have more than one victim when we look at the criminal case outcomes. So we separate those out into uh, different cases. So that's what we've been doing. And, and uh, you know, it started out as something that was all on paper. And we've long since gone away from that. So we have a uh, in, an object relational database. So it has a digital imaging database component. It has a video database. It has a relational database component. All these things are put together. And then ultimately, I have a staff of research assistants who are students uh, here at uh, Bowling Green, and they uh, code the content of all the data, all the raw data that we have, all the news articles, the court records, those kinds of things uh, for every arrest case. So while we're logging in arrest cases for 2016 right now, another group of students are actually going back and coding the 2012 arrest cases on about 270 quantitative variables. So we have a computerized coding instrument, and then ultimately we'll do analyses and we'll add that to our um, data set of 2005 through 2011. And the reason there's a lag of several years is that because we are interested in the criminal case outcomes, we're interested in the final adverse employment outcomes, those kinds of things. We've got to give it some time, give it some time to work through the court system gotcha. and, and, and that sort of thing. Yeah. So it's interesting. It's a lot of work. Yeah, no, I mean, that's that right there. It sounds I mean, that's pretty amazing, actually, your description of it. I mean, a, a lot of what you said is over my head as far as how you guys collect the data. But the, the data that you get and, and the results that it yields is fascinating and certainly something that was needed. And as you noted, was lacking, you know, for, for years and years. So, yes. Yeah, so and it's good to know that that level of thought and research is going into finding these numbers. So, you know, that data is is true and accurate because. I, and I've heard you mention this beforehand, you know, unless you guys are doing this, then who else is telling the public what is really going on? You, you, you know, and like you said, the, those cases that are outside of our local areas that we live in, you know, one thing that I feel, and you probably run into this to a lot, I would assume in your work is that, you know, when, when we talk about what the police are doing, you know, a lot of people think it's cop bashing, right? You know, and, and I always say, well, isn't it just accountability and, and accurate and I guess for you accurately reporting on those who we trust, you know, when shit goes bad? I mean, that's right. Right. Exactly. You know, um, uh, a lot of people assume that somehow the work that I do is anti-police, that I'm anti-law enforcement. And I really don't look at it that way at all. Um, I look at this, you know, I'm a criminologist. That's what my PhD is in. And I look at this as life course criminology that we're looking at. Uh, the work I do now, it's a longitudinal trend study, and we're looking at uh, patterns over time, but we're also looking at patterns and uh, analyzing data over the course of individuals' careers. So I'll give you an example of something that uh, identified 
fairly early on in the research, and this this is held true uh, every time we go back and look at the uh, more current numbers. Uh, prior research from back in the actually from the 1960s and 70s would suggest that if an officer is going to get in trouble, they're going to do so pretty early in their career. In other words, there's a whole socialization process when it, someone becomes a police officer. They go to the academy. They have a field training officer after that, and then they ultimately they get on the street by the by themselves. And generally, if an officer is going to get in trouble and wash out, it's going to be within the first three to five years. So if somebody gets to about year seven in their employment as a sworn law enforcement officer, the Prior research uh, really assumed that they just sort of write out their careers and they just kind of like delinquents uh, age out and police officers age out, bad cops age out is what they were looking at. So uh, what I found, though, is something different. I think the reason that we were the first to find this was nobody else has had this type of data. So what we found is about 20% of the officers who were arrested each year are arrested within three years of their being eligible for retirement from the police department. So we see these jumps. We see these spikes at 18 to 20 years, 23 to 25, 28 to 30, and even 33 to 35 years of service. And it, it to this day, it just blows me away because it, it's really hard to sort of figure out what's going on. If somebody has been a law enforcement officer that long, how is it possible that they're getting in trouble at that stage. Have they been getting in trouble all along? Is right. this something new? And I think several things are going on. I think one of the issues is it's very difficult for somebody to lose that persona as a police officer. They've got the gun and the badge, and that those are really heavy things. And I think that a lot of people have difficulty um, going back to a non-law enforcement position. In other words, having to uh, co-mingle with their neighbors without doing so under the background of having a badge and a gun. And I think that's a difficult thing for some people, that transition. Yeah, you know, I'm glad you mentioned that because that's one of the things I want to talk about because I think that kind of relates to your research on domestic violence and and as far as and domestic, even in your neighborhood, and you know, and not being able to turn that switch off. You know, I, I think you mentioned so. Even you know, you just talked about post career, but even at, while they're still on duty and active, you know, there there's, appears to be at least research shows that turning that switch off is, is hard. So when they when they have that mentality, you know, they they get into a lot of uh, domestic issues, you know, involving partners or neighbors or things that you know. Yep. Um, yep. Absolutely. So officer-involved domestic violence is a huge problem, and it's something that until about 15 years ago really wasn't uh, looked at very closely, and, and, and a few things happened that, that turned that around. One is the police chief in Tacoma, Washington in the early 2000s was named David Brame, and he ended up in 2003, I believe, um, shooting and killing his wife and then shooting and killing himself in the presence of his young children. And in the wake of Brame's murder-suicide, there was uh, an investigation that looked into, you know, how did we get to this point? And And there were some really troubling things that had come up. One thing that came up was that when he was hired as a young police officer, there were recommendations from uh, more than one police psychologist uh, saying, do not hire this guy. We've evaluated him and he is not fit to be an officer. There were allegations of rape that were made by uh, one or more women during his career, and those were completely discounted. And there were ongoing problems when he uh, broke up with his wife with domestic violence that just, you know, was ignored. So, yeah, we've done some research in this area with officer-involved domestic violence. and, And as you pointed out, it's really difficult for some officers to turn it off when they go home. So policing is violent. They deal with all kinds of violent things in the, the course of their job. And it seems that um, some officers have great difficulties in turning that off and just being a husband or a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a dad or a mom, right. um, you know, when they go home. So, um There are all sorts of issues here with officer-involved domestic violence that are huge problems. For example, if you're the victim of officer-involved domestic violence, 
who do you call? If, if you live in the area where your significant other is employed by the local police department, you may be very reluctant to call that agency because ultimately you've got dual concerns here. One is you've got to stop the abuse. The other thing, though, is you've got to hopefully do that in a way that somebody doesn't lose their job because you've got child support, you know, all kinds of right, things right. to think about. But here, here's the kicker. There's a federal law. It's called the Lautenberg Amendment to the Federal Gun Control Act of 1968. And under that... Uh, Someone who has been convicted of what they call a qualifying misdemeanor crime of domestic violence uh, cannot own or possess firearms or ammunition. And there's no exemption for military or law enforcement officers once they've been convicted. So it's a huge problem. And we see strange things happen where officers are actually charged with the wrong offense when they should have been charged with simple assault or felony assault for domestic uh, problems and instead they're charged with something that's seemingly inappropriate and it's to get past that because if they get convicted of that domestic violence charge they're done right okay yeah okay and then, and then yeah that makes sense they'll, they'll just uh they'll cut them off so they'll change the charge wow yep so do you think that that is to protect the the municipality and the to protect the officer and also to protect that municipality and the uh, police force for that area or is it twofold there yeah it's it's, it's all of the above because uh you know uh, cops like to protect each other there's a strong you know police subculture uh they don't try they, they try not to turn on each other those kinds of things so so you've got that sort of thing you you've got the concerns of somebody losing their livelihood and then it, you know law enforcement agencies don't like this negative attention once it gets out into the press and it really is an interesting thing because if you think of it if you're a if you're an accountant if you're a salesperson if you're a firefighter or a plumber you're not going to lose your livelihood because you're convicted of a simple assault charge but you are as a law enforcement officer there's a lot at stake here. Right. So I was about to say, so there's almost some practicality in doing it, but I feel, I feel terrible <laughs> saying, you know, there's no practicality and obviously, you know, excusing or trying to cover up domestic violence, but, but from a, just from a practical nature, as far as protecting the livelihood and uh, the things you mentioned, I, I can see why the incentive um, lies there for those, for those people. So, so staying on the whole domestic violence thing. And, and am I right to, couple when i you know domestic violence generally you know means in the home you know spouses or partners but you know I, and kids children too. And, and, and kids you know but, but when when it's done outside of the home and in the neighborhood or just in the everyday walk of life and i i think you mentioned on, on another interview i heard where you know sometimes it's just committing crimes for sport like just fucking with people like so yeah and, yeah and to me, those kind of all go into that same, you know, not turn off the switch, having that level of authority and um, and knowing that, you know, you, you could get away with it or more than likely, depending on what it is, you know, you, you're going to get away with what um, whatever you're doing. So, you know, I, I think we should maybe we should tell people we should go back and tell people a little bit more about your background. I mentioned that you were a former police officer, but, you know, when when we talk about what cops are doing and how they uh, may feel. You, you've got special insight to that, having been a former police officer. So, and and then, uh, so yeah. So let's circle back and um, and talk about your trajectory from police. Well, actually, from dispatcher initially uh, when you were college, and right. then, and then to uh, your research now. So yeah, let's talk about how you made that transition, how you ended up here. All right. Well, um, you know, I went to. I went to college in Virginia at George Mason University right outside of Washington, D.C. And while I was in college, I was a police dispatcher with the Arlington County Police Department, which is just across the Potomac River from Washington, D.C. And from there, when I graduated from college, I, I, I wanted to go to northern New England. So I moved to uh, New Hampshire, became a police officer in Dover, New Hampshire. One of the reasons why I moved to New Hampshire, other than my girlfriend lived in New Hampshire at the time, uh, That's a good reason. Was yes, uh, it was at the time. Yeah, um, one of the reasons was all full-time police officers in the state of New Hampshire go to the New Hampshire State Police Academy. Everybody gets the same training. It's phenomenal training. Um, 
They have a statewide retirement system. You could actually move around from agency one to another in the agency. And I just, uh, there was a lot that I liked about it. I liked the agency I worked at. At the time, there were 40 or 50 sworn officers in that department. I think it's bigger now, but it was about that size when I was there. And one of the things that I really liked about the agency was that they had a case management system where Unless it was a drug case or certain juvenile cases, most of the follow-up investigations came back to the patrol officer, and we really did a lot of uh, detective work as, as patrol officers and got a lot of good criminal investigation experience as a young police officer, and I think that was, that was important. And, uh, you know, I spent several years up there and uh, decided that I wanted to uh, go to law school. So I went back to Washington, D.C., worked at a law firm, and then went to law school and practiced law for about uh, 10 years. So while I was in law school, I worked as a counselor at a juvenile detention center okay. in Fairfax County, Virginia. Uh, you know, I've, I've done criminal defense work as an attorney, you know, all kinds of different things. And then ultimately... Uh, you know, my I really sort of imploded professionally and personally and decided I'd live a lot longer okay. if I wasn't a litigator. So decided to go back to school because I wanted to become a university professor. And to do that, I needed a Ph.D. And to get into a Ph.D. program, I needed a master's degree. So that was a rather lengthy process. And then in 2009, I uh, finished up my dissertation, earned the Ph.D., and then came to Bowling Green at that point. Okay. All right. Well, that's um – that's a that's an interesting life, <laughs> you know. That's that's a lot. That's that's a lot of different things in uh, this time. So, you know, I, I've heard you say that you saw some shit that really opened your eyes while a police officer in New Hampshire. And immediately, yeah. I think, geez, what could he have seen in New Hampshire, like on the mean streets of New Hampshire? But, <laughs> but you know, that's what I thought when I moved there too. I thought, well, this is going to be pretty quiet. And and uh, you know, the a lot of things blew me away immediately up there. One of the things that really uh, I guess I'd never thought about before. You know, I had, as a child, my family vacationed in northern New Hampshire uh, many summers, and I was used to, you know, some of the more rural areas of the state. And I guess I'd never really thought about the fact that there were public housing projects in, you know, cities in New Hampshire where, where I ultimately worked. And, you know, I did a lot of work with kids in public housing, and, and it just I wasn't expecting that in, in, in that, you know, in, in that area of, uh, of New Hampshire. So, you know, there were all sorts of things that I saw over time that were um, just just uh, not what I was expecting. And, and quite honestly, they were very different experiences of what I witnessed as a police, as an auxiliary police officer and a dispatcher in Arlington, Virginia. I saw things in New Hampshire that just blew me away. So I'll give you some examples. So okay. one of the things I saw was that there were a few people in the agency that I worked for, one specifically, who was hell-bent on the good guys always winning. And it didn't matter how we won. Uh, the bottom line was, at the end of the day, the good guys are ahead. And the problem with that is it just uh, fundamentally uh, is unconstitutional, but it's just morally wrong to nail something on somebody when, uh, you know, when they're not the bad guy that committed that crime, even though we know they're committing like crimes, that, that sort of thing. Okay. And, and I was involved in a case that went all the way up to the New Hampshire Supreme Court that, that dealt with an out-of-court identification that had been rigged so that it was overly suggestive and that a, a victim would uh, point to a certain guy as the rapist when, in fact, he could not have been the rapist in that case. So things like that. And which, I saw which, which, uh, where I'm, so, I'm sorry, which case was that? I, there's a uh, podcast called Crime Writers On that's based out of New Hampshire. And uh, I'm, I'm just curious. I know some of them listen to this show. Which case was that that you cited? That that case is called State versus Fecto, F-E-C-T-E-A-U. And okay. the defendant in that case was named Gary Fecto. And he, he went to prison for many, many years. And, uh, you know, he was a bad dude. But he he uh, and I arrested Fecto um, for attacking a uh, a young lady. Uh, he picked the wrong young lady to attack. She was on her way with her father that day to some sort of regional judo championship, and it was just the the wrong young lady to pick. But the the crimes that they wanted to pin on him, which were uh, you know just a little bit 
different and, and they could not have, for a variety of reasons, could not have been effective. Um, but that's the case that I was referring to. And I, okay. and I only mention his name because it is a published court opinion and, and it's a matter of public record. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. Like I said, I, I just, just as a, a point of reference, I'm just curious if that's a case that they may have mentioned or had some familiarity with. So, yeah, no, I appreciate that. Okay. All right. So the other, the other thing I saw up in New Hampshire that blew me away was where, uh, you know, there was a lot of street justice where officers would just beat the shit out of somebody uh, for the sport of it and to teach somebody a lesson. Right. Uh, and I had not witnessed that type of thing before, hadn't been involved in that type of thing. And it, it really uh, was an eye opener. And frankly, my experiences up there, I think, really have uh, had a lot to do with the course I've taken in life. You know, fundamental due process is just really important to me. And, and, and I think a lot of that comes from my time working as a police officer in New Hampshire. Okay. All right. And then also uh, you mentioned the, the good training and the, I guess the kind of universal training they have up there. And is that where you heard the, the three things that would really screw up a cop in their career? Yeah. That, that's right. I was at the uh, the State Police Academy in Concord, New Hampshire, and it was um, it was almost thirty years ago. Actually, I'm fifty one years old now, and I was twenty one at the time. So it's uh, 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 you know loosely stated uh, booze, broads, and bills. So in other words, alcohol related problems, women related problems, and money related problems. Those are the three things that are going to screw you up as a cop. They're going to mess up your career and mess you up. And I think there's a lot of truth to that, actually. Right. And, you know, it's interesting. Anecdotally, I can tell you that um, a surprisingly large number of the officers that get arrested for a variety of types of crimes um, have uh, uh, filed for bankruptcy. And okay. we know that because we went back and actually ran all the names of seven years of officers that had been arrested uh, 5,545 through the federal courts PACER system, the public access to courts electronic record system to find out uh, if and when they had ever been civilly sued in federal court for violating somebody's civil rights during the course of their law enforcement career. And, uh, you know, there again, we found uh, it's, uh, close to 20% of these officers had been sued in federal court at some point in their career. Uh, but we also saw a lot of these officers had, had, had serious money problems that filed for bankruptcy. Um, we, we can see some patterns too mid-career between nine and 12 years of service. We are aware that many officers uh, that get in trouble uh, seem to be having divorce problems around that time. Okay. Um, so, uh, so that's the women. Then we got the, the money problems and then the alcohol problems. So one of the things that I wanted to study, and we did this a number of years ago, I was really interested in studying uh, drunk driving and police officers because when I was a police officer, it was the general uh, unwritten policy, the unwritten rule, that you'd always help an officer out and you would do everything you could to not arrest them. And remember I said law enforcement is exempt from law enforcement. Right. And that's especially true historically in drunk driving cases. So we had, uh, I think it was 782 cases over a five-year period of drunk driving arrest cases. And we wanted to know, all right, what is it about these cases that led these officers to be arrested? When we know that most officers who get caught driving drunk are not criminally charged. Uh, and what we found was that typically those were cases where something just really sort of weird happened, something that you could not explain without having to call a tow truck and spend money or write up a report. <laughs> okay. So if a like officer, last resort stuff. Yeah, well, if a police officer drives into a fire truck or a fire hydrant or a fire station or another police car or flips their car over into a ditch, takes out a row of mailboxes, those kinds of things. We saw that over and over. I've never seen so many flipped cars in my life. So those kinds of things led to officers being charged. And then another thing that was really sort of strange, over 15% of the officers who were arrested for drunk driving uh were also charged with hit and run. They fled the scene of an accident while they were drunk. And the reason they do that is because they know better than anybody, if they cannot get caught until they sober up, 
they're not going to get the DUI charge. Right. Yeah. Because yeah, there's the blood alcohol level will in- right. decrease and and, and they'll, it'll be out of their system. Okay. Right. But this is a bad idea, and I do not recommend fleeing the scene from an accident because all it does is aggravate the problem. It makes it worse, and ultimately uh, lands them in a lot more trouble. Where they're frankly more likely to end up losing their job. Yeah. You, you know. You know. And and the whole alcohol culture of police. You know, it's. It's certainly dramatized a lot, you know, the, uh, and I've, I've always wondered, and, you know, TV is not reality, but it, it certainly spun from some level of truth, you know, and they always, you know, that long day in the office, a long day chasing bad guys, everyone goes to the local pub, bar, whatever, gets shit faced. And then I'm like, well, how do they get home? <laughs> you know, and, 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 and so I guess obviously that happens a lot in real life and is, is really an issue. Well, what, what's weird is when you mix the alcohol and firearms, so there was a, a professor named Jim Fife who passed away more than a decade ago, and he coined the phrase bizarre violence when referring to off-duty officers and the crazy shit they do with firearms, with guns. So you mentioned bars. We have more than a handful of cases where off-duty officers sitting at a bar pull out their gun and, uh, you know, brandish it, point it at somebody else. You know, a normal bar dispute, let's say you and I get in a dispute over the Cowboys versus the Redskins or right. something like that. You know, for some reason with these guys, it leads to pulling out a gun. It's just crazy. I mean, who does that kind of thing? Nobody but drunk cops. Okay. All right. So, yeah, I guess that it's that same thing, The the that level of of power entitlement. and entitlement. That's, that's the word. Yeah. And power. And power. Guns. And uh, a badge equal an amazing amount of power that can be misused. Yeah, and and I, I think we, I think most of us have experienced that in our lives, even when just getting pulled over, where it's like, you know, like, dude, why, why don't you relax a little bit, you know, you know, or, or uh, in, in certain interactions. So another thing that seems to be pretty prevalent with cops is when they do go off the rails, if you will, or you know, they're really in heavy in the domestic violence. Isn't them killing themselves? You mentioned the uh, in Washington with the uh, the police officer there killing his wife and then killing himself. It seems like I hear about, and I guess there's a decent number of murder suicides, you know, independent of being uh, police officers. But is the um, the suicide of police officers or or, them, or you know them committing uh, or shooting themselves in those instances is is that pretty common too? Yeah, unfortunately, we do see um, a fair amount of suicides with officers who get in trouble, and uh, it's 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 a it's an unfortunate thing, and it's an interesting thing. So we see this, well, frankly, uh, too far far too often, where an officer is about to be arrested and kills himself, and. The reason we talk about it in my research group is we have a case inclusion criteria that they actually have to be charged or arrested before we include them in the database. So we actually had a case, I think it was in North Point, or Northport, Florida, where an officer uh, knew that the knocking on the door were was other police officers coming to arrest them, uh, and the officer killed themselves before they actually – accomplish the arrest. So we did not include that case okay. in our case inclusion criteria. So you use the term coming off the rails. One of the things that we've seen, and we see this where officers get in trouble uh, over a, a period of time and get arrested multiple times, is that it's a, uh, a complete unraveling where we can sit here in Bowling Green, Ohio, in my research lab and and look at a case where, or look at an individual and say, you know what, that's the third time that dude has been arrested for drunk driving in the last uh, 12 months, and the second time they're arrested for uh, domestic violence, somebody needs to intervene. And we had a case just like that about two years ago, where it was an officer in the Cleveland area in Ohio, where about a day after I had mentioned that to one of my research assistants, the officer killed himself. And, and the student said to me, why didn't you do something about that? And I said, well, whoa, wait a minute. We're researchers. We're not working out in the field. We're not clinicians. You know, that's not our job. But the point is, if we can recognize that somebody's completely unraveling, right. the signs are all there. Why are they ignoring it? And, and I can tell you the answer to that is 
when the Justice Department comes into an agency and, and mandates they make changes because of civil rights problems and things like that, one of the things that they typically require is implementation of something called an early warning system or an early intervention system. And it's basically a flagging system where they track all sorts of data on officer conduct and misconduct. So the number of complaints, the number of traffic accidents, the number of sick days, uh, all, a number of arrests, all these different kinds of things. And the idea is to intervene if somebody is prone to having problems or they're heading down the wrong way before it escalates and it's too late. Right. And, and what the research has shown in that area is that the agencies, even when they have these early warning systems, they ignore all the flags, they ignore all the bells that go off, and they simply ignore it. And, and that's what seems to be going on with these officers who have completely gone off the rails. They're completely unraveling professionally, personally, you know, everything's coming to a head. It, it's a, it's a problem. And that's one area that I'm hoping that my research, you know, can, can get more into that area where we're able to try to come up with some, uh, you know, use all this data to try to figure out what can we do to change the way that agencies operate to help officers before it's too late, whether it's suicide or whether it's, you know, arrest for a felony, whatever the problem is, or misdemeanor, frankly, cops shouldn't be getting arrested. Right. You know, something needs to, something needs to change. And I guess I should point out, you know, we deal with outliers, you know, only a fraction of 1% of the officers in most departments ever get arrested. You know, it seems like a lot when we're talking about, we have over 10,000 in our database over the last 11 or 12 years, right. but it's, it's, you know, it's a, it's, it's not a large number. And keep in mind, the only ones who get in our database are ones who've actually been arrested. Right. Yeah. And, and well, that's a that's an important distinction. Yeah. We're not certainly talking about. I know some of our listenership are uh, police officers, and we all know you. We're not talking about everybody, but in in light of everything that's happened, you know, since you know, it's like post Ferguson now. You know, it, it's it's important that these conversations are highlighted like it's so things can be done preventative and, you know, uh, the light can be shined on, you know, if, because it, it, a lot of these reports that come out about these officers, you know, there was something funny in their personnel file. Oh, maybe whatever, you know, there, there's sometimes there's these warning signs as we discuss. So it's important that, you know, we, we highlight these items, you know, like uh, you mentioned your data from 2005 to 2011. I've got these numbers from, from you where, Let's see, 6,724 arrests involving 5,545 individual sworn officers in over 2,500 agencies in 1,200 counties or, excuse me, uh, independent cities in all 50 states, right? So that's, those are the, that's kind of the data we're talking about. So when you hear those numbers, you know, when you talk about that 1%, I mean, it's, it's still a small number, but those, those numbers still seem sort of staggering. Well, they are staggering. I think the reason it's, it's so, important and it's so surprising when you look at those numbers is that there's no other research that I'm aware of where that has looked at so many agencies at police misconduct that, you know, we're looking at, uh, what, over 2,500 agencies. That's a lot of different places. Right. Um, all across the country, uh, you know, urban areas, suburban, rural, it, it's, it's a, it's a lot of cases. And, and again, we're adding about a thousand to 1,100 new arrest cases each year. And, and and with those arrests, your your research also shows that a lot of those end up in them being fired, excuse me, and not being fired. I should say, like, and I guess, and to relay that to like on duty shootings, you know, you, I've got some numbers here where fifty four officers arrested, eleven convicted. There were nineteen cases pending at the time when you were reporting this, and uh, all others were, all others were found not guilty or cases dropped. So in the in the event of an on duty shooting, you're talking about shootings where somebody's charged with murder or manslaughter. So <clears throat> right now the numbers are up. So we've got uh, as of today, um, if we go back to the beginning of 2005, I believe it's 70 officers have been charged with murder or manslaughter resulting from an on duty shooting. Okay. Uh, and 23 of those officers, so about 38%, if my math is right, were convicted. Okay, so, so I'll update these A lot numbers. of those cases okay. are still pending. But, you know, it's very difficult for uh, a court, for a prosecutor, for a prosecutor to get a conviction in those types of cases. Um, but I want to go back to something that you had just said. So in terms of officers that are fired, when I started this research, 
I had the assumption that if an officer was arrested for anything, that was it. They were done. They, they were they were gone. They were they were fired. And that's not the case. Uh, and and there are some differences from state to state. So if a state is a right to work state. If, in other words, if it's a state that does not have collective bargaining in the public sector, right. uh, those officers, I think Texas may well be in that category. We are, yes. Yeah. So um, in those states, an officer is uh, likely to get fired immediately after uh, an incident comes to light or an officer is arrested or charged. You know, in South Carolina, before the sun comes up the next morning, they're fired, okay. and that's typically the way it is for police officers in, in those types of states. And then on the other hand, if you've got uh, agencies like the Philadelphia Police Department that's in a state that allows for uh, police uh, collective bargaining, it is damn near impossible for the Philadelphia Police Department to successfully terminate uh, an officer's employment as a result of uh, being arrested. Uh, it's it's very very difficult and and sometimes it doesn't even happen when they've been convicted so long as it's a misdemeanor they've been convicted of but it does blow me away that there are there are cops out there who've been convicted of misdemeanors relating to their jobs and they're still out there working as police officers and I just I didn't realize that happened so um, and by the way we see in the states where uh, it's a right to work state where an officer is quickly terminated in those states for many types of the criminal offenses for which they're charged. The officers are less likely to be convicted. And it seems to be that the courts are saying, well, look, he or she's already been punished enough. They've already lost their job. Okay. Do we really need to go through with this? You know, and the charges get dropped or they get, uh, you know, reduced to a fairly minor uh, offense. And then there's a, a plea bargain. So we do see some of these patterns. Um, but yeah, not, not all of them are, uh, uh, fired. Uh, sometimes, uh, you know, officers, and this is not in my database because they weren't actually charged, but this really does interest me. Sometimes officers are given the option of quietly resigning in lieu of criminal charges being initiated. Okay. And there's several reasons for that. One is agencies don't like airing their dirty laundry. They don't like things becoming public. So if they can handle something quietly, they're going to... They're going to do so. Another reason that, that seems to come in play, every cop in this country knows something called their Garrity rights. So there's a case from the 1960s, a U.S. Supreme Court case called Garrity versus New Jersey. And the holding of that case is that um, a law enforcement agency in questioning an officer about a potential crime uh, can require that the officer answer the questions or lose their job. But if they do that, that's a coerced statement that cannot then be used against the officer criminally. Okay. So you come into that sometimes with officers who are actually allowed to resign or terminated in lieu of charges being brought. The way you'd successfully prosecute a case like this is you'd have to build your case without that statement that was obtained in a coerced fashion. That That's all there is to it, but that just doesn't seem to happen sometimes. Right, because there's a there's a reluctancy to pursue those on that level, as we discussed. Okay, so let's uh, you know, one thing I another thing I wanted to talk about was uh, sexual misconduct. If we're talking about things that happened in your research, because one thing that um, really stood out to me was over fifty percent of the victims of police sexual misconduct are juveniles. Right? Yeah, yeah, it's really um, quite troubling. Uh, so there are several things there. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's really alarming when on a daily basis in my work and my research group, we see cases where, you know, my research assistants will tell me the facts of a case and I'll say, oh, that involved a 15 year old girl and a cop, right? And, it, and it's really strange. I mean, we can really see these patterns. So there's several things going on. Um, by the way, boys are sexually victimized by some, you know, rogue police officers as well as girls. So we're talking about predators there. We're not talking about your average cop. We're talking about sexual predators who are criminals who happen to have a gun and a badge. Right. And right? And, and you mentioned that 15-year-old thing. That's the sweet spot somewhat for, and that sounds bad to say sweet spot, we're talking about predators, but but for both boys and girls, being 15 right. is that, that number just 
just so happens to be, right? Yeah. Um, and there are several things. One is I think at age 14 or 15, kids are more likely to be out without uh, so much parental supervision. That that may have something to do with it. Right. We also see something going on where it seems that officers, both on duty and off duty, have access to kids, teenagers and younger, um, in situations where their caregivers let their guard down that perhaps they wouldn't. You know, if if the uh, new boyfriend was, uh, I don't know, a uh, a landscaper, a plumber, a librarian, you know, maybe mom, you know, wouldn't leave her 15-year-old daughter and her 12-year-old daughter alone with him. But since he's, uh, you know, a police officer, well, that's not a problem. We're just going to send the 12-year-old and the 15-year-old over to his house for the weekend while I work or whatever. Right, you know. right. Okay. Those are strange situations, but we see we see a lot of that. And yet yeah, it's it's about fifty percent of the cases the victims are under the age of eighteen when we're dealing with officers who are charged with sex offenses. Uh so that that's a huge that's a huge problem. And and some of the stuff is just um it's just unreal. You know, officers who are uh using a uh, police department computer to go online and solicit what they think is a 13-year-old girl or a 14-year-old girl. I mean, it, it's bad enough that, that people think they can get away with that kind of thing, but who the hell would do that on their work computer, let alone if they're a police officer? Right, I mean, it's just right. absolutely nuts. So, uh, yeah, another thing that we see that's troubling with, again, we're dealing with a very small number of predator police officers here, are we see a pattern with some officers who uh, sexually victimize uh, women who they view as throwaways, women who are on the fringe, sex workers, prostitutes, strippers, um, homeless women, you know, uh, that that sort of thing right, okay. where they don't think they're going to be believed if they come forward. Uh, that's what Daniel Hoseclaw, who is an Oklahoma City police officer, yeah, right, the serial, right. And, he was killing yeah, the, the black women, or the uh, exactly. Almost all of his victims were women of color, and most of them were were older than you would typically think the victims would be. It was a very strange case, and uh, thankfully, um, you know, one of the women who he uh, he thought that one of the women was a you know just a throwaway and what he did not realize this was a, a fairly young grandmother who had no criminal record and had a good job and when she came forward she was immediately believed and that really started the ball rolling in, in this whole investigation with Holesclaw and and as you probably know he's been sentenced to more than 260 years in prison for the various crimes for which he was uh, convicted fairly recently so he is a uh, 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 you know, really troubling, uh, troubled guy. That that's a nasty, nasty case. And you got to wonder how many women were victimized that did not come forward. We we do see a pattern, and I I saw this initially in cases out of Southern California years ago. So when you have a woman who's finally believed and criminal charges are brought, let's say for an officer who rapes them, and we're talking about on duty cases here. Right. Um. As soon as it gets into the news that, that this happened, that the, the officer was arrested because you have this victim, there's for every one victim initially, there's five more. Okay. There's five more, and, and they end up coming forward. And frankly, it's a strange – I don't know if anybody else has recognized this pattern before, but we actually saw the exact same pattern with uh, Jerry Sandusky, the former assistant football coach at Penn State right. who was molesting young boys. Same kind of thing. Where you know there was five to every one that initially had been believed. Wow. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's kind of like that Bill Cosby um, thing. You know, and I don't know if those numbers are accurate too, but people say that those numbers are are larger too. So, wow. Okay. You know that Holtzclaw. I really I want to do a whole show dedicated to telling that story. You, you know, just because it is so interesting, and I don't know that it got the media attention. Um, I don't know if it's because it's Oklahoma or because it's uh, women of color or maybe there was so many other things going on in that news cycle. But I don't feel like it got the um, level of attention uh, media wise that it needed well, to. A lot of people uh, think that it did not get the media attention that it should have. And uh, I will tell you that we have more news articles in our database about Daniel Hoseclaw than any of the other almost 11,000 officers in our database. 
But here's the thing. I think that the that the press, and especially the national press, was slow to uh, report on that case. And, the, and the, the problem there is, is the reason they were slow to report on that case because the victims were black women. Oh, right. And, and that, that's the problem there. And, and I think it's something that's, uh, uh, I don't know the answer, but I think there's something there. And I think that it's something that uh, the media should uh, you know, really think about. Okay. Well, you know, I, I certainly agree. And, uh, well, since, well, when I do this episode, I'm going to get with you and get some, get more of your research. Cause I, I do want to tell that, that story, um, both as a information, as a, as a cautionary tale too, you know, to shed light on kind of what's going on. So, all right. Well, that's, uh, that's sad. You know, I, I'm saddened to know that it wasn't reported by the media because they were black women more than likely, but it, it's certainly not. Unexpected, so I guess that's kind of where we are, uh, unfortunately. But uh, all right, so the I have one other topic I wanted to get on with you, and that was school resource officers, because yeah. obviously, how as things change, you know, in my lifetime, I don't. That wasn't something that was real prevalent. I think when I was a kid, you know, maybe in inner cities or different areas, but growing up in the suburbs. Uh, we didn't have them. I guess as I got to high school, there was an officer there. Uh, I take that. I, th- I think there may have been an officer uh, in my later years of high school. But I don't know if they called it a school resource officer back then. Yeah, I don't. I don't think so either. I don't know that. I don't think so. I don't, the the effect in the role that they play now versus what they have what they did back then. I think has changed. You know, in, in twenty years or so, what was it twenty? Yeah, in twenty plus years has, has changed a great deal, right? Yeah, well, there's there's several things with the uh, school resource officers who get in trouble. So, and by the way, the, the school resource officers that, that we see getting in trouble, they typically get in trouble for cases that you'd more likely see uh, a high school teacher get arrested for. So okay. sex crimes involving kids that they came to know through the course of their employment at the high school or the junior high. So there's there's two important things to consider here with the school resource officers. One is these officers who are placed in the schools, and quite often they work for sheriff's offices, but they can work for other agencies as well. And where you are in Texas, you've got a lot of independent school districts that have their own police departments, right. those kinds of things. So the officers are generally not educators. They're not people who have gone to college to become a high school teacher and be got, gotten licensed or certified in the state as, a, as an educator. Um, they don't have the same training and background as other people do who work in our public schools. Uh, so that's one thing to consider. Another thing is there's there's a problem with role ambiguity. What is it that the school resource officer is supposed to be doing in the school? Are they security? Are they a counselor? Are they an investigator? You know, what is their role? And that's not clearly defined in a lot of places. It's, there's a lot of confusion about that. And because there's uh, confusion and role ambiguity, there are problems as to their training and their in-service training. Because if we don't know what they're there to do to begin with, it's hard to figure out what to do in the way of uh, training and in-service training. So we got a lot of problems there. And, and frankly, I think that uh, in many instances we have school resource officers just because parents and school board members and teachers want to have somebody there. If the worst-case scenario erupts where you've got an active shooter uh, in a school. But I will tell you this. Uh, you know, I remember as a young police officer thinking it would be kind of cool to work in the local high school, but I think it's a bad idea generally to have police officers always in our public schools. And the reason for that is I think that kids who get in trouble at school, their behavior becomes criminalized. They're charged as a delinquent or right. as an adult yep. when before it was just a school discipline problem. You know, when I was a lawyer, I represented a lot of kids in school discipline cases, kids who had been expelled from public schools or, you know, that, that, that type of thing. And, and now what we're seeing is these cases are quick to get into the court system when in fact there are a lot of cases that would have been handled informally, would never have had law enforcement involvement. So I think that's a huge problem. And because of all the issues we just talked about with role ambiguity and lack of training, lack of education, lack of supervision is another one. Right. Uh, you know, I think uh, 
I think this is something that, that people need to spend a lot of time thinking about. You know, do we really want cops in our schools? And if so, what are they there for? You know, that, that type of thing. Yeah, because like you said, with the role ambiguity, you know, um, and, and there's been stories here in the Dallas area all over the country where the principal is sort of taken out of the equation, you know, because the, the, the police officer certainly is not going to acquiesce to the principal if there's something that they deem criminal. Whereas, you know, back in the day, the principal would, you know, they'd expel the student or suspend the student or whatever, or it, it might die there. But now, like right. I said, the, the, the kid is picking up a charge and, um, and, and, and then that is a whole nother can of worms because the juvenile system where, the judge is making those decisions. There is no jury. You know, that, 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 you know, when you, when you're putting, you know, you're creating a, uh, could, what could be a fast track to the criminal system, you know, it is a fast track for, for, yep. for, for, for things that are, are simple, little small things that we all either did or experienced when we were kids. And that doesn't make certain things okay. But, you know, having a record for, you know, I, I can't even think of some little asinine thing, but a lot well, of simple assault. Uh, simple assault. It could be uh, having a uh, some sort of a weapons offense because the, you know they uh, they had their Boy Scout knife that they you know you have the little kids third grader who had his Cub Scout knife that right. was in his book bag because they went on a camping trip with his Cub Scout pack the weekend before hands it to the teacher as soon as they realize oh my gosh I've got a uh, my pocket knife with me and then instead of just you know quietly taking the knife from the kid now that's you know zero tolerance. And you got the third grader who's being arrested for having a dangerous weapon in a school. It's nuts. Yeah, no, it, it definitely is nuts. Well, yeah, no, I mean, hopefully. So what do you think? Where do you think your research on that and everything is headed? Do you think that obviously, I mean, your your position as a researcher is to research, gather that data to distribute that out. But is there a... As a researcher, is there a goal? You know, um, what is your goal, or is there a goal? Well, um, I, I think that uh, you know, if you look at this at many levels, one goal was to get a job and earn tenure and get promoted and things like that. Well, of course. You know, so that we got those kinds of goals. But but with this research, I am very interested in you know again I go back to life course criminology and looking at. Uh, you know, the trajectory across, uh, individuals' careers and looking at patterns and trying to figure out ways to reduce these types of problems for individuals and for agencies, uh, going forward. So that, that's the kind of thing that, you know, I'm hoping to, uh, um, you know, focus on in, in the years ahead. Think about, you know, what sort of policy implications are there? What sort of training implications are there? Those, those are concerns that I think, uh, flow out of this research. One of the things that's important is to get the research out of the academic journals that nobody has access to and nobody reads, but I'm required to publish in in order right. to have gotten tenure and promoted and all that stuff. Um, which is, by the way, one of the reasons we started, the only reason we started the Police Integrity Laws podcast was because the condition of our grant from the National Institute of Justice at the U.S. Department of Justice was that we have some products that result from the grant that are non-scholarly, that are practitioner-oriented. So okay. we did that uh, as a way of just getting this stuff out there so that people would be able to access this without you know, finding their way to an obscure journal somewhere. Right. Okay. Well, well, that's good. I'm glad the, uh, the grant called for that and you guys had the, uh, wherewithal to put that out there. It's really informative. There's, uh, a lot of episodes, a lot of information that you put out. A lot of your, uh, talks and, and, um, and interviews are featured there. So I, uh, recommend that everyone check out, uh, the podcast there. And I definitely appreciate your time this, uh, this morning. I, I would, I would, is there anything that, uh, anything you think we haven't covered or anything that's real important in your um, research that is important to get out to our listeners before we wrap up? Well, I think the, the one area we haven't talked about is uh, drug crimes involving officers. So we looked at uh, several different things with drug crimes. One is we're interested in the corruption-related things, the, the shakedowns, people who are being robbed uh, by rogue police officers, those kinds of things that are drug-related types of crimes committed by officers. But the other thing is we were interested in uh, looking at beyond that into looking at what are the drugs of abuse of choice 
of law enforcement officers, and we found that the drug of choice, no matter the crime, whether it's personal use, whether it's dealing, whether it's stealing, whether it's you know whatever it is, um, is cocaine. Okay. It's cocaine, marijuana, crack, and then oh, wow. heroin. Really? Okay. In that order, and and there is a. a Probably what we see in the general public is the patterns that we'll see with officers. We've seen, um, uh, uh, you know, a shift to heroin from pills. Um, and by the way, almost without fail, every one of the cases that I can think of that we've looked at that involved an officer with some sort of prescription pill criminal charge, they all relate back to having been injured. Yeah, you know, and and that's I guess that whole opioid addiction because um, yeah. that's what leads to the heroin a lot of times, right? right. I mean, it's just the same thing as the general public. We're seeing that exact pattern with officers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Th- yeah that that's sad. I I I plan to have a, a, a another professor, an addiction specialist, on to have an, an, op- an episode about chronic pain management and addiction and, and yep. what's going on. So okay, and then you talk about the corruption too. So so. Th- you see abuse with the drugs for those four drugs that you mentioned, uh, cocaine, marijuana, crack, and heroin. And then also the, the idea of the dirty cop and the distribution and, 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 and the thing that, things that go on there is that's, that's what you're talking about as well. Yeah, we, we see um, a variety of different kinds of shakedowns that are drug related. One of the biggest problems is uh, drug related shakedowns where an officer, a dirty officer, is actually um, stealing from somebody they stop in a traffic stop. Okay. And, and that happens all over the place. And it happens all over the place with um, Hispanic motorists. And, it, and it's, just, it's really kind of a nasty stereotype where you've got these predator cops who are pulling over somebody because they believe that Hispanic person is a Mexican. And because they're Mexican, they're an illegal immigrant. And because they're an illegal immigrant, they're carrying a lot of cash because they don't have a bank account. And we can steal their cash. And it's really a strange thing. But we see this all over the country where we have rogue officers who are robbing Hispanic motorists. And by the way, almost... All of them are not illegal immigrants, uh, do not have a large amount of cash, and they're probably <laughs> right. not Mexican. Right, <laughs> right. Okay, I got you. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's the same thing, I, I guess, with the prostitutes and sex workers. The, the, the more vulnerable you seem, you appear, you, you know, it, it's the more likely you are for uh, the predator cops, uh, predator police to take advantage of that. And it, it's sad that it falls along race lines, but I mean, I guess it's just like every, so, you know, basically, I guess your research, not basically, but it highlights what is going on in society, just in the subsect of police officers, but they're just a reflection of a society. And I think it's important to remember that, that those officers live in our neighborhoods. They, they act, work, they have the same life experiences that we do. Right. And, and there's not much difference because they put on that blue or black badge, excuse me, uh, uniform and carry they that gun. They have the same problems that we do. And some of these people, by the way, are, are, are people who've been friends of mine. And, and, you know, they've got to do the same thing that everybody else has to do to get in trouble. Figure out how to move on with your life on how right. to be productive again, those kinds of things. So, yeah, I think that's a good point that what we're seeing is, is a real um, – mirror image of what we see quite often in the general population with some exceptions we've got the gun we got the badge and we've got the you know occupational deviance kind of things that go along with all that but you know these are people who shouldn't be getting arrested anyway so <laughs> right right yes nobody should get arrested but generally we certainly don't think this is a problem that we'd have to deal with so so uh, yeah so the research goes on and uh, hopefully, it's meaningful research that can that make make a difference. Well, yeah, no, it's, it's certainly meaningful to me. I, um, I I think our listenership it'll be meaningful to them because, you know, this data it transcends race, gender, whatever. Because we we all live in these, you know, what is it, twenty five hundred agencies? You know, these we we all live in we all live and policed by these areas. So it's extremely important. So personally, I appreciate your research and uh, what, what your team is doing, what you've done for these last uh, 10 plus years. And uh, I definitely thank you for coming on the show uh, in your time today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks. Thanks for having me. What is good. I told y'all that was going to be a good one. 
Man, I hope y'all enjoyed that conversation as much as I did recording it. The topics that we covered, I think, shed a lot of light on, um, like I said on, on the show, it's a microcosm of, of what we experience in uh, our everyday lives and as a normal society. But it's really important that the uh, ones we hold to a higher standard, the ones that we call on to protect and serve, you know, that, that we pay attention to what's happening with them uh, more so as, as a cautionary tale, really, so that uh, they can do what they're supposed to do uh, in the right way. So thanks again for everyone who listened. Uh, please use the hashtag the vocal minority. Make sure you go right now, subscribe, leave a five-star review and a rating on iTunes, repost and like on SoundCloud, follow me on Twitter. We have a new show name now. It's uh, now Vocal Report, at Vocal Report on Twitter. You can tweet us, get at me, anything you want, and then uh, follow us on Facebook, facebook.com slash the vocal minority report. Once again, thanks a lot, and we'll holler at you next week. Peace. That concludes this episode of the Police Integrity Loss Podcast. The interview was originally recorded for the Vocal Minority Report podcast on May 24th, 2016. The recording was produced by Melvin Glasgow. This recording is used with permission of the copyright holder. The Vocal Minority Report podcast is available on all major podcasting platforms, including iTunes and SoundCloud. My name is Phil Stinson, and I'm an associate professor of criminal justice at Bowling Green State University in Bowling Green, Ohio. Support for the Police Integrity Loss podcast was provided by the Wallace Action Fund of Tides Foundation on the recommendation of Mr. Randall Wallace. The research discussed in this podcast episode was supported by award number 2011 IJCX24, awarded by the National Institute of Justice at the United States Department of Justice. The opinions, findings, and conclusions or recommendations expressed in this podcast are mine alone and do not necessarily reflect those of the Department of Justice. For more information on my research, please go to www.bgsu.edu. Slash police integrity lost.